Hello, and welcome to Dodecahedron, a podcast by, for, and about roleplayers. I'm Jess Vetters. And I'm Colin Lamont. Every week we get together to talk about a range of gaming-related topics, from creating a character to running a game, and what it all means for people who share a favorite hobby. We may not be experts, but we do have pleasant voices and a wealth of gaming experience that we're eager to share with you. Preach. Our topic to... Uh, what? <laughs> Sorry, I just added in... Oh, we can start over. No, it's good. <laughs> Our topic today is rules versus narrative. Uh, which times do you throw out a rule or which times do you fudge a dice to keep it flowing and keep things going like we just did with our intro there? Tr- but before we really get into it, Colin. Yes. We're recording this on Oscar night. We are recording this on Oscar night, although... On my end, it's 12.20 a.m., so I've officially passed Oscar night. Well, I mean, we're in the same time zone, so both of us have. But Oscar night was, in general parlance or nomenclature, tonight. And uh, big congrats to one of my favorite movies of the year, The Shape of Water, for Ooh. winning, like, kind of everything. Oh, that... that, that... It's really great. Uh, first of all, can't recommend going to see it enough. But also, I hope that the, you know, reception at the Oscars will um, encourage more movies like that to be uh, to be attempted and put out for audiences. Now, here's my question: When you say more movies like The Shape of Water, do you mean you want fantastical fairy tales set in a grounded world with elements of magical realism mingling with supernatural or horror elements? Or do you mean movies where they fuck the monster? You know, I'm going to say the first one, but uh, my girlfriend would say the second one. All I'm saying is, and I generally try to keep this podcast kind of PG-13 at most, but you, you fail we that. are we're under that explicit tag so that when a subject comes around that I need to talk about, I can say things like, I was very pleased to see a movie where the monster gets to be sexy. See, I didn't even know we were under the explicit tag until now. See that? Yeah, Me are. editing all of my language until up till now. All right. All right. I, I see where we are now. Well, it's like I keep the explicit tag on there for when I can't let Grandma listen to it. But Ooh. if Grandma listens anyway, I don't want her to be angrily telephoning my mother. <laughs> that's fair. That's that's absolutely it's absolutely fair. Also, I wouldn't mind seeing more Guillermo del Toro films. If he could put out, like, one every two years instead of one every three to five, that would be great. I'm with you. Because uh, he's just got this very unique and lovable aesthetic that I really enjoy. His worlds always leave me with the question of, what else is there in that world? And I think those are the those are the kind of movies that I most enjoy seeing. The ones where after it's done, I'm like, all right, well, that was a complete story from that world. But now that that exists, it begs the question of what else exists in that world and how would that work? I start thinking about what sequels would be like or exploring the mythologies of that world. And that's really an exciting place for a world creator to be. Mm-hmm. 
and especially like talking about what we talk about every week, they are crazy inspirational when you come to like, I want to run a game in a system like World of Darkness, especially. Yeah, I run a crap Watch. ton of World of Darkness games, so magical realism is really just my bread and butter. Ah, oh, it's fantastic. Like, watch any Del Toro movie, and you can walk away from that thinking, huh, you know what? Yeah, I can pick something out of that that I can use. Absolutely. And I, I, I just, I can't recommend The Shape of Water enough, and some of the other Del Toro films, especially horror. If you're running World of Darkness, some of his horror movies that are just beautiful, very evocative. Oh, yeah. Great at setting a story, putting it in a grounded Kind of surreal looking, but very grounded place. But let's move along to the meat of the games, the, the, the structure of how these games are run, our dice systems, our rules, and when we have to throw those out. Let's shall. Now, when we get into this, I kind of want to follow a rules heavy to rules agnostic structure in our uh, discussion okay so starting off talking about some games like eclipse phase mm. which for anyone who is familiar with the netflix series or the novel altered carbon uh, eclipse phase is basically unofficially altered carbon the game mm, right and it is very heavy into like big simulationist science fiction there are dozens and dozens and dozens of different factors that go into character creation to the point where a friend of mine who has run it a couple of times described it as taking, I believe what he said was it takes a week to make a character. Wow. Yeah. And I've got that to book me, on my shelf. I just, haven't, I just haven't cracked it open to really figure it out yet. I just don't have time for it. Ah, it's one of those. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way with the, uh, the Dresden Files role-playing system. Got that I one have had too. that book for years, and I've never played it. <sighs> if only we had the time to run all the games we want to run. The time and the people. Because, <clears throat> let's be real, when you've got the choice between, hey, who wants to learn an entirely new system for the game tonight? Or who wants to just play the one or three games that we're all very familiar with? Most of us are a little bit lazy. Well, I'm really blessed in that way. My group will pretty much do anything that I slap my name on. So if I'm like, we're going to try this system out now, I've got a pretty good story for it. They'll learn the system and they'll go. It's just, you know, a question of finding the time in my schedule. Damn. I'm glad you recognize that you you are a little bit blessed in having players that are willing to step outside the realm of possibilities. Yeah, I'm deeply fortunate in, and, and I think this is something that can be said of um, building a building a group through years and years and years of time, um, and a little bit hearkening back to uh, what we've talked about in terms of the relationship between the GM and the players. 
after a certain amount of time of uh, of running games and running games well, you start to kind of engender people's trust. And they trust that no matter where you're taking them, you're going to tell a very good, engaging, and fascinating story. And if for some reason it doesn't work out, you've got another one in the wings. This is not something you can just expect out of a new group for people to just go along with it and step outside of their comfort zone. But if you spend time really building... Um, people's narrative trust in you, how you handle their characters, how you handle the game and their engagement, uh, they'll be more likely to follow you into sort of uncharted territory because they trust that you're willing to bring, that you're going to bring your A-game to it. It's good to, uh, good to acknowledge. I like that. Now, Colin. Yes. Colin, my boy. What? <laughs> what would you say is the most rules-heavy system that you have run a game in? <clears throat> well, although it does require, although it do, you know it can have quite a bit of ignoring rules, I would say that like D and D three point five is one of the most crunchy, crunchy rules. There's there's rules for like for everything for your position um, in relation to a monster. Um, there are rules for uh, all of your actions and how much time they take and which actions you can and cannot do and which weapons you can and cannot hold. Um, in terms of the most rule-heavy game, I would have to say that that would be, of course, 3.5 or into Pathfinder. Pathfinder streamlines some things, so I would have to say maybe 3.5 takes the cake on that. But, yeah, that's that's where I, any more rule intensive than that, I can't remember a game that I would have played, and I probably would have stepped away if I knew that it was more rule intensive than that. That's just yeah. a lot of memorizing. There's a lot of rules to know. I think for me, it's fairly similar. Like I played one session of a d and d two or advanced d and d. I can't remember exactly what it was now. i it was years ago but like one session in old school dungeons and dragons and that kind of left me reeling because it's so simulationist hmm. uh where it's like yeah describe what you mean by that okay so there are a few different philosophies of <coughs> the different types of role-playing games and the types of players who are attracted to them mm, right. uh, one of those being simulationist which is we like to literally sit down and crunch the numbers and everything works within the system the way that it's supposed to, and it's generally more about one of two things. Simulationist players want to fight the fights and get the loot, or they want to, like, essentially recreate a narrative. These are the players that you will find who actually have... Drizzt Dorden as a character who shows up in their universe. Right. Or of these course. are the players who, if you're in a Star Wars game or something like that, like maybe Anakin's were just around the corner, but we're definitely gonna fight General Grievous's army. You know, stuff like that. Mm, right. I I completely understand what you mean, but incidentally, how do you feel about that? If you were playing in the Star Wars universe. Uh, would you want to play in some sort of backwater system where you only tangentially know what's going on? Or 
do you feel like it would be appropriate, possible, and even fun to encounter, even briefly, some of the NPCs or the titular characters in the Star Wars movie cinematic universe? Well, let me preface this by saying I don't really interact with fan fiction on any level. Um, Occasionally, I will scroll through Tumblr and I'll see something that just shows up on my dash, and if it's less than a few paragraphs, I might read it. Or if it's a comic with an art style that I like, I might look over it. But that is, like, the extent to which I will look at fan-created works pretty much in general. Hmm. So when it comes to the idea of playing in an established universe and dealing with established characters, I generally put the kibosh on that fairly instantly. I don't want to see, you know, Joe Schmo's version of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I don't want to play in a game with my friend's version of Hawkeye. From the Marvel Universe. I don't want to see my DM's idea of who Drizzt is supposed to be. None of that has any appeal to me because I want to create new stories. So if I'm going to do like any sort of Star Wars or whatever game in the first place, it's not that I want the backwater provinces that aren't involved in the main story. It's that I want that universe with a completely new idea. I see. Interesting. I'm more of the philosophy that it kind of depends on how the character is portrayed. I like the sanctity of stories. And Star Wars is a is a kind of a universe that has had a lot of stories told within it. It's, uh, it's very difficult to avoid the main story. If somebody wants to play in, you know, the heart of the in the heart of the rebellion during the plot of the movies, it's going to be difficult not to mention what's going on or to at least be somewhat close to where some of the action is happening. The way that I like to look at it, and I've I can be of two minds about this. I know some people who have played with named NPCs in their games, and they've had kind of silly uh, player characters who do things like um, like Moon uh, Count Dooku from a skylight and somehow are not dead, um, or managed to seduce Admiral Trench, who's a um, character from the Star Wars The Clone Wars cartoon. Um, and I, I, I can't I can't quite get behind I can't quite get behind that necessarily. I can't get behind somebody getting the equivalent of Padme's uh, cell phone number uh, by rolling really well on their charm check. I don't necessarily like revisionists who revise the story kind of uh, into whatever direction that they want using the NPCs kind of a a poor representation of them, but I have also been in games where someone was a was a true was a true fan who spent time not only trying to affect some of the um, mannerisms of the NPC, but really kind of studied the the body of their work throughout the throughout the movies and tried to present them as as purely as possible, not necessarily as your sidekick in the game, but perhaps your quest giver or someone who happened to be in the same place at the same time and you got to witness an event firsthand that happened. You got to be one of the nameless uh, clone troopers um, that was around before Order 66 uh, that, 
you know, witnessed some of the great missions that the Jedi went on during the Clone Wars, you were there doing other phalanx things and had some interaction with them. I think as long as it's not the centerpiece, as long as those main characters are not the most pivotal part of your story, they already have their story where they're the pivotal part. This is the story about how the other characters are pivotal. So I don't mind them being important elements, and I don't, and to that degree, don't mind them being portrayed as long as it's done well. Sure. And, like, I, I don't want to make it come across like I am opposed to... How do I want to say this? Uh, like, just fan-created content in any form. I'm definitely not. I think if that's what helps you get your creative juices flowing to the nebulous you, whoever you are, who's sitting out there thinking, oh, this guy doesn't like the way that I like things. It's weird no. that you think they talk that way. Well, it's um, it's old man Carruthers who <laughs> listens to our podcast and also writes copious amounts of um, erotic Yoda x Luke fan fiction. And you know what, old man Carruthers? You do you. <laughs> I am not here to say that you can't create or play or interact with the work in any way that you want. And it's like, you know, Colin says he's not a revisionist. I say nothing that I can do sitting at my table is going to change, especially the Star Wars canon. There's just no way it's happening. But at the same time, I'm also the person who's sitting there thinking like, all right, you want to bring Darth Vader into this game? What is that going to do to the story and how is that going to limit us? I get you. I completely understand. Me personally, I like to think of it as a challenge. Can I not change the story, but still make the players relevant and grounded within the cinematic universe? How do I manage that? How do I get around the story elements that I know are about to happen while still making it exciting for the player characters that are involved? It's certainly a challenge to give yourself. So, and uh, I, I would imagine in doing so, you'd probably have to work around the rules a little bit. Ha <laughs> ha! Circling back around. We got back to it, people. Only took ten minutes, but we got back to it. That's kind of what this is about. So, yes. the most rule-heavy system that I have been involved in, again, I'd say, you know, 3.5. You say no. second edition. And how did you feel um, having to interact with those rules? What was, the, what was the struggle? Very often what I run into is this idea that rules restrict the players, which doesn't necessarily need to be true if you have a very kind way of interacting with the rules. Uh, and I mean that not in the sense that as the DM or the storyteller or the master of ceremonies or what have you, that you need to actually, like, that you need to bend rules or that you need to make things easier on your players but as long as everybody involved in the process knows however this falls we are playing by the rules then you can make that work but you have to understand that in a lot of systems death is imminent and character death is not the only thing that can derail your narrative but it is the 
simplest to talk about. Like, if you are in a fight with the big bad, and maybe you didn't balance the encounter correctly, or maybe the dice just aren't falling in your player's favor, and half the party gets wiped, well, that's half of your players that maybe aren't having a good time anymore. And I'm not saying... If that natural 20 comes up for the second time as the boss is using smite good or whatever on your, you know, level 18 paladin and they do a boatload of damage, I'm not saying, like, change that to a 1 and now it all rebounded back on them, but, you know, maybe that boatload of damage is more like a, more like a little schooner than a cruise ship. Hmm. So, I guess that leads me into a question for you <clears throat> have you had that situation happen before has your enemy or the antagonist rolled well enough to absolutely destroy a player character and you held back <clears throat> oh absolutely undoubtedly multiple times one fun little dm trick that i have that i know others of you out there do is when you roll all those dice, and maybe you've got it behind the screen, maybe you're just kind of like rolling and adding in your head because you don't want to say those numbers out loud because you know what's about to happen. You'll just ask the player in question, hey, so how many hit points do you have left again? And when you hear back, uh, 36, and you have just rolled 52 on the dice, maybe you say, wow, that's lucky. I did 35 points of damage. I've I've done almost exactly that before. Because to me, it's all about <laughs> prolonging the fun, not prolonging the fight. Because like if a character's going to go down, they're going to go down, but I basically like giving everybody that special ability from Pokémon that means you will always hit 1 HP left before you go down for real. So do your so do your players know that you have that rule? Because no. if it, it it would seem it would seem to me that if that happened more than once in a game, I would assume that the DM had that rule. Oh man, that's lucky. This did exactly one less than your maximum HP of damage. What are the odds? Well, and it's also the sort of thing that you can really only get away with, like, once or twice. And if it starts becoming really necessary more than literally once or twice in a campaign, then you need to actually sit down and think about the way that you are building encounters or the way that you're building traps or what have you, because... Your players are either gluttons for punishment and they want to die, or you're just setting it up in a way that makes it nearly impossible. That's absolutely fair. <clears throat> and far be it for me to say that I have not held back <clears throat> in almost every single game that I have played. The, oh, yeah. The problem being <clears throat> is it... There's a point of philosophy that comes in um, that comes into play here. On one hand, <clears throat> are you building? Are you playing a game, or are you telling a story? 
oftentimes I am telling a story more than I am playing a game. And stories absolutely, and, and, and a lot of stories kind of absolutely despise unnecessary endings or, or, or anti or anti-climax. Absolutely. So if you're in a grunt fight, like you're just in an encounter fight and this NPC rolls well enough to drop one of the main characters right there and then, if you go along with it and say, well, the dice fall where they fall, then your story has hit an unexpected and devastating roadblock. Your main character is gone. All of that investment is gone. You can have that player make another character, but you'll have to rebuild them in, rebuild their relationships with NPCs. You have to rehash some scenes, possibly. Um, you have to sort of rebuild your position with uh, with the game. You can't necessarily rely on the rest of the party to bring them up to speed exactly. Depending on what the relationship was like, <clears throat> an unexpected death can mar a storyline. However... If you play enough games where the players start to believe that they are telling a story, then their actions start to change, as you might imagine. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Genre savviness is very dangerous when it comes to getting your players to actually do what you want them to do. Also, a sense of immortality can ruin the stakes that you attempt to set. If your players don't expect to die unless it would be a plot-relevant moment, then they will make decisions and actions that they normally wouldn't have made if they didn't know that that safety net was in place. And sometimes that, that happens in my group. Sometimes people will, will act because they sort of expect to survive it. Um, <clears throat> and that's my fault for playing more towards a story than a game and it is a and it's a weakness of mine that i am attempting to combat by allowing sometimes the dice to fall where they may and just be better at working in the idea of unexpected unexplained and sort of uh random death into the narrative into the storyline but it is it is hard to work back from that when you build a story for as long as you do and oh, you are waiting just just prepped for such fantastic reveals and scenes and that person dies to some sort of road encounter you're like this is such an unexpected problem and it's one of those that in terms of continuing a narrative is almost impossible to work around satisfyingly mm -hmm. because if you do have a player who you know your second level fighter goes down to a swarm of rats because that's just how the dice fell and like you were hoping to take this party up to 10th level and have some epic campaign for the next two years or whatever and it's like well we're six sessions in we already established everybody and now uh well, damn it, Grapthor the Hammer went down, and we don't have the resources to reverse death in this setting, or maybe that's not an option. Because, let's be real, as soon as the option to reverse death comes into play, the, the right characters are functionally immortal. Yep. 
but you've got to figure out how to keep the stakes reasonable without letting any little old thing become completely deadly unless that is the story that you're trying to tell. Exactly. I've talked about the game Dread before. This is the horror game that's played with a Jenga tower instead of dice. Right. And it is one of the most rules-light games that I've ever seen. It's almost completely narrative. Literally, the only rule is that if the... I think they refer to us as storytellers in that setting. But if the storyteller says that you need to make a pull for an action, you need to make a pull. And if the tower falls and you were the last to interact with it, your character will have to leave the story somehow. Interesting. they make numerous concessions saying that doesn't have to be immediate. It doesn't have to be death. It doesn't even have to necessarily be permanent, but it does mean that your character is out. One of the ways that I like to deal with this, um, it's this is a system that has a lot of a lot of pre-built campaigns or stories within it, but it makes it very easy to set up your own. Um, so I had a character who kind of pulled the whole heroic sacrifice thing and knocked the tower over so that another character would not go down so that the other player wouldn't be the last to interact with it. And I had set everything on a cruise ship, so what I basically did, uh, I had a ghost that was attracted to the smell of blood. Uh, This character essentially, in pushing another character out of the way, slipped in a pool of blood, got herself covered in it, and then jumped overboard from the deck of the ship. So, like, the ghost follows the scent of blood while the other characters escape. It was a nice way to follow the rules and still keep the narrative. There was one other time that I have played this game where the tower kind of just fell on its own. Nobody had touched it for a while, but the people I was playing with have a cat. And sometimes cats nudge things, and sometimes things that are nudged nudge other things, and then the tower just fell. (laughs) It was through no player fault. The tower fell, and by the rules, that means whoever interacted with it last, they're out. So what our storyteller did on that one was basically just said, well, I guess the cat's dead. And we just put the tower back together and kept going. Interesting. So we've come back to Dread as your rules lightest system. Yes. Um, And it's one of the reasons why I like it. It generally puts narrative above everything else. But that said, you don't need a really rules-light system to focus on narrative. And obviously, like, what I like to think of as a good middle ground is a system that you and I are both very familiar with, which is world of darkness sure 
Should we be calling it Chronicles of Darkness now? <laughs> I know they're trying to make that nomenclature shift and have been for like a year. Um, well, the way that I see that is that New World of Darkness is a different system than Chronicles. Chronicles does bear a lot of resemblance to New World, but there are a number of things that are different now. Goodness, I wish they had just like done the edition thing like Dungeons and Dragons so I could just say, Colin and I played a lot of second edition World of Darkness. I nope, mean, we played a lot of NWOD. Yeah, I mean, they can't because Paradox, who bought the rights to the game, are coming out with a Vampire the Requiem. What do I want to say? Third edition, fourth edition? I don't know what edition they were on. Um, so. The New World was sort of out the ability to call themselves that, so that's why they became Chronicles of Darkness. But New World, New World of Darkness, still exists as a brand line. It's just now being converted into Chronicles of Darkness, but there are differences, numerous ones. Mm. Now, the question that I have for you Jess, is, uh, we've talked about sort of fudging the dice when it comes to players in their life and death. When else have you found it necessary to sort of waylay the rules, to ignore how things would have exactly gone that aren't necessarily a life and death scenario? Well, there are basically two answers that I have for this question. The first is something that we will get into soon, but not to too great an extent today, and that's introducing or shifting rule sets in order to allow for characters that don't necessarily follow all of the rules. Like, um, in one of the games that I'm playing in right now, one of our characters is a halfling monk, but because of narrative purposes, she also kind of has psychic powers. Okay. Makes her a very interesting character. There is no specific rule set that allows this. So what has happened is essentially the DM sat down and said, Okay, this is what this means you can do. Play it how you see fit. And so far, so good. The other answer that I have that I can go into much more detail today because that's what we're actually talking about <laughs> is when it comes to kind of for funsies stuff and I don't mean things that don't matter at all because otherwise why would you why would you fudge the dice if it doesn't matter but when you are desperately trying to get information out of that uh, hobgoblin warchief and you've tried bribes and it doesn't work and you've tried intimidation and it doesn't work and then the bard comes up and says I'm gonna seduce that hobgoblin warchief and at this point the DM is thinking well that would solve one problem, which is you need the information from the Warchief, and it would solve another problem, which is my players might be getting frustrated with continually getting stonewalled by the dice. So whatever comes down here, I'm just gonna say, ah, oh, what do you know? The difficulty check on that was only nine. It's a, it's a lonely hobgoblin. 
He's, he's into it. <laughs> things like that accomplish two things very well. It keeps the story moving and it keeps your players engaged. And I think that's very important. Absolutely. Uh, player engagement is necessary to keep the sort of progress of the story going along. Especially in mystery-based games where players sometimes miss clues. I will... <laughs> I was hoping you would talk about things like this. I will often give them other opportunities to roll to find some of these clues. At the very worst case scenario, I will at least have one. I, I like to I like to call them kind of um, helper NPC that exists within the narrative of the storyline that has been around as sort of a side character that can kind of suggest things that I can't straight up tell them outside of the game to refocus their efforts or to cause them to think about things in a different way. Sometimes I'll, I'll even talk about an encounter that they had um, and present it in a different light for them based on <clears throat> a, a character's kind of innate wisdom or intelligence score, like someone who has a really high intelligence character. I'll, I'll sort of take them aside and say, so what was your read on this last situation? What did you think about those motivations? And they'll tell me their answer. Like, well, here's another thing that you might be able to consider uh, because your character is fairly smart. Perhaps it was this other reason that could also very well motivate them to act in the way that they did your character would be able to draw that conclusion after a little bit of time reflecting. So whenever you feel that it is the right time, you're welcome to bring that view to the table if you'd like. Mm -hmm. That's <clears throat> always an interesting hurdle to get over when you have characters who should be able to figure things out, but your players, whether by virtue of not actually seeing the clue right in front of them or maybe yep. you've got a player who is playing a you know five points intelligence private detective in world of darkness <laughs> and <laughs> maybe in real life you know they're, they're closer to three points and their training is in i don't know theater <laughs> and and maybe they you know, they're, st they're still a smart person who can figure out a lot of things, but just don't have the right life experience to solve a, a murder. <laughs> so maybe if maybe you cut him just a little slack. That's a very specific example you're pulling from what? there. What? <clears> what? <throat> specific nice. examples on this podcast? Never. <laughs> I think ultimately for the DM... And, and this is the advice that I would give to any DM that was ever starting a game, is that the rules are there to create a framework by which you can arbitrate action. The dice make it so that we don't know what the results exactly are going to be when somebody rolls. In the end, the stats just make those dice rolls more likely, the thing that the player is trying to accomplish more and more and more likely. That's how a lot of these games are set up. But in the end, all of these pieces are, are just arbitration. They're just mechanics by which you can tell your story and still allow the players to feel like they are affecting that story. Don't be afraid to step away from some of those mechanics when it would serve the story and the player's interest better to 
ignore certain aspects or to embellish or, or even overlook some things about the rules that aren't helping for the situation. You know, <clears throat> what's important for me is that the players are having a good time, that you as the DM are having a good time, and that the story is enough that it will sustain itself to the next session. In the end, exactly. yeah, in the end, the rules are just your way of engaging with the elements of the story itself. Feel free to shape those up a little bit, but also, and, and I think this is important, be willing to discuss that with your players. Uh, if it looks like you can ignore the rules whenever you'd like, but they can't necessarily, it will create a kind of a, a power dynamic that you don't necessarily want. But if you explain to them that in the interest of making a really good story, sometimes we might overlook certain aspects of the rules. Well, sometimes we might uh, engage in the rule of cool. This seems really cool, but you know your character sheet really doesn't support that you'd be able to do it. Nor does there seem to be a role for it. You know what? Screw it. This would be really great for the scene. I'd love to narrate this. We're going to let it happen the way that it happens. Can I think something that you're touching on there, if I may interrupt for a please, moment. Please, please interrupt. Gets into the player archetype of the rules lawyer. Mm. And that person who maybe they know this system in and out. Maybe they know it better than you do. And they are going to make that known at every opportunity because, gosh darn it, they've got all of this information bouncing around in their head and they're not going to let it slide for nothing. They always know it better than I do. I've got one player who uh, makes it his job to know the system better than me so they can build the best kind of characters. And I'm just, I just, I just can't. I just can't sit down and memorize all those rules. Can't do well, it. This is my personal bias coming out, and if you like to play this way, I am not attacking you right now, and I would like to make that clear because one of the players in one of my games is this person, and playing with him is actually kind of delightful. <laughs> but if you are a rules lawyer and a min-maxer, and I am running the game, I am going to strongly encourage you to not do those things. Because, like, let's be real. Everything that we've been talking about here, this whole rules versus narrative and this fudging dice and all of that, there is one overriding reason why this happens more often than any other possible reason. And it's incredibly simple. Nine times out of ten, if I fudge a rule or if I get something wrong and you've noticed, I will justify it as being to help the narrative. But let's be real, it's just because I don't remember. I'm running an entire game, I have a hundred NPCs in my head, I've got 42 different places you can go, I've got four systems that I'm running at any given time that I have to keep in mind and keep track of and know which one is different, and I've got to keep all of your different characters in separate little cubbies in my head so I know who can do what and when and why and how and where they're from and who's interacting with them. So if you're getting on my case because I didn't say the right dice that you roll for your damage on Hail of Thorns or whatever, don't. 
<laughs> it's fine. Get off my back and let me live. Ah, uh, see, you just need a personal assistant. I need like a personal AI assistant that just knows everything and anticipates my mistakes before I make them. Eclipse phase, just get an extra stack and, you know, make another you. Yeah, why not? There you that go. That goes well for everyone who ever does it. Yeah, no, there's definitely no stories in which that backfires. No, none. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. If, in your group, just remember that, you know, if there's a rule that better serves your character and the DM forgets it, Kindly remind them, but it is in how you remind them that the experience will be aggravating or something that is easily just easily just gotten over. Yes. Just remember, and you know, this is something that we touch on in a lot of episodes, just communicate like your friends. Communicate politely. Remember the DM is putting a lot of work into their story, and the DM needs to remember that the players put a lot of work into their characters, and they know their characters backwards and forwards, sometimes in ways that the DM does not know. And so you... Just be open to communicating about that. And it doesn't yeah. matter if you game the system. I mean, it can be aggravating for some people. As long as you're not cheating, if you're actually utilizing the rules the way that they are, it is the responsibility of the DM to find a way to categorize challenges so that you can still feel impressive and like your build was relevant, but the other players aren't left in the dust. Now that said, if you determine that your best mid-maxi build is a cavalier fighter who rides a war dolphin... And I told you that the setting is in a desert. Um, I don't care what your DPS is supposed to be. You would better have a darn good reason why sand dolphins exist in my setting. They'd be so cool. Think about them. Sand dolphining around. Okay, no, I mean, you just blew the hole wide open on the thing I was saying with one extra word, and I was trying to justify why it wasn't a cool thing, but let's face it, sand dolphins are awesome. Right? I... <laughs> oh. Damn it, you just blew this case wide open! <laughs> I'm glad that we got back into the voices. I mean, we were never really going to leave them for very long. That's that's absolutely fair. I think it, I mean I think on that note, the last thought that I wanna that I sort of wanna leave um, you on for this episode um, is that we run our games in a certain way. Uh, we've stated as much on several of our other episodes that we are more narrative heavy than we are rules heavy. So we have made the decision that the rules can be properly sacrificed whenever narrative absolutely needs to thrive. That is not necessarily the right way to do it. Sometimes if you want to rely on the rules to help moderate the story, there are people who designed the game and designed the rules to help keep encounters fair and balanced and things moving along. So I'd understand if you'd want to, I guess continue to uphold the rules and in every instance that they exist. I would only welcome you to take a look at your story, what you are building, the arcing grander narrative, and decide when things can be bent. Not necessarily broken, 
but bent in order to service the enjoyment of everyone at the table. Because we've all had bad dice days. And if the whole table has bad dice days, it's very easy to wash out a session that way. And you, as a DM, have to be able to be agile enough to shift perceptions and shift the mood at the table. And if the dice aren't helping you do it, and they are the only way that you know that action is arbitrated, come up with another way. That's all I can say. Yeah. At the end of the day, yes, all of these systems that we play, at least most of the ones that are published, have been playtested mm-hmm. over and over again for days, weeks, months, sometimes years. Whole conventions. And sometimes you just have to sacrifice a rule or two on the altar of fun. It's the whole point. Just have fun. Absolutely. And uh, if you have ideas of how we can have fun or you can have fun with us, you can email those to us at dodecapodcast at gmail.com or leave them on a comment on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash dodecapodcast. What's really cool is that you asked for them to send any ideas about how they might have fun with us or we might have fun with them, but it wasn't necessarily about the podcast. So I I fully expect some vacation plans and uh, game opportunities and a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't necessarily pertain to what we're talking about. If you want to go to Evo in Las Vegas with me and Colin, bear in mind, neither of us know very much about fighting games, but that would be an interesting time regardless. Yeah. I think Evo's coming up. That's why I, that's why I name dropped it. It's just the first like event that I could think of that wasn't just let's go surfing or something. I mean, this is the first I'm hearing of Evo, so you know, works for me. Cool. Once again, from everybody here at Dodeca Podcast, that is Jess and I. Um, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you if you have any questions or comments, and. Uh, We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Bye-bye.